Welcome to Sanity, a podcast to help you keep yours in today's divisive political climate. I'm your host, Audrey Scagnelli, and I hope you'll join me in this quest for optimism in a post-2016 world. I'm currently in New York City sitting with Faisal Saeed Al-Mutar, who has an incredibly inspiring life story And he now runs Ideas Beyond Borders, an organization that was founded in 2017. But before we start talking about the work that Ideas Beyond Borders is doing to tackle polarization and radicalization around the globe, um, Faisal, I would just love if you could share a little bit about your own personal story. You were born and raised in Iraq, and you were on your first day of high school. ISIS took over and bombed your school, and you have lived through horror and the death of your brother. And through all of that, you are an optimist. And so please share a little bit about your journey. Sure. Well, well, thank you so much for for having me. Uh, I was, I mean, I I was born in Babylon uh, and I was raised, my my dad is a medical doctor, mom's a lawyer. We come come from what's sometimes called the average middle class in Baghdad. At the first years of my life, I grew up under Saddam Hussein. And then, uh, as you mentioned, the the war happened. So what happened when I was uh, graduated from elementary school. So after that, I mean, I, I do remember the days of Saddam well, um, living under censorship and all of that. Actually, I, to give you an anecdote, I, I didn't know that Iraq invaded Kuwait. <laughs> so we actually got to know about that after the second war. My neighborhood used to be kind of a place where many of the generals of Saddam Hussein used to live. So the moment that the war happened, many of these uh, generals like, gave their houses to Al-Qaeda and other militias, mainly Sunni militias. Uh, and as a result, my neighborhood, uh, which is in West Baghdad, became an underground for a lot of uh, terrorist operations. And so on a usual day, there is, there is a suicide bomb or there is a beheading in the street. Or there is a, so anything that people have seen in ISIS in recent Mosul and all of that, uh, I have lived it in, in one uh, kind of the rise of, the, of these mountains. So... Just uh, on the first week of, of high school, uh, so I mean, when I moved, so I was in a neighboring, uh, a small neighborhood next to our house, and uh, Al Qaeda at the time. So AQI is the same as ISIS. I mean, they're kind of similar ideologically, ideologically which I'm going to touch on that uh, later. And so, yeah, they they blow up the the police station next to my school, and uh, as a, as a kid, I, I was just scrabbling around like what what was was going on, and then. So that, and at the beginning, it was a, shock, a shocking moment, but that became the norm. Like after next month, if they're not blowing the police station, they blow up another hospital. They're not blowing the hospital, they're blowing up a school. For, for those who, who know about Iraq, uh, there, in 2007, there was a very uh, important moment in which when Al-Qaeda blew up one of the largest mosques, the Shia mosque in Iraq. And as a result, that ignited, I mean, in most what people say a civil war. So in that way, the Shia, another side of the Baghdad, another side of the country, started getting mobilized. And my neighborhood was in the middle of, of the Shia neighborhoods on the east of, of Baghdad and the Sunni neighborhoods on the west. So it became a, a, a place of a proxy war between the... Within, within that period, my brother was an usual day going to work and then he got kidnapped and and killed, and I mean that's what we know. Uh, I mean, we know, I mean he was kidnapped, and then it's like you you keep hearing about um, different stories and all of that. 
So as a result, I mean, I was at the time, like, I mean, even before my, my, uh, my brother, I started writing about the subject. I started speaking, mostly I was speaking more than writing, talk, talking to my friends about, like, look at these guys that they're destroying our neighborhoods. And one of my colleagues, I said, which I still suspect, he was an Al-Qaeda sympathizer. And he was, an, uh, I think his cousin was there. And I started... One of, have, one of your classmates, Yes, right? one of my classmates in high school. Um, and as a result, I was I was told that I actually ended up on a death list of that. In a way, not the major Al-Qaeda, but Al-Qaeda that was operating in the neighborhood. Uh, I had to change schools. I moved to a different... I went to a different uh, school in a different neighborhood. And I left Iraq in 2009. In September this year, I was finishing 10, 10 years since I uh, left Iraq. And... I went to Lebanon, which is a closer country. Then from Lebanon, there was another conflict happening. So I had to run from that to Malaysia. And I applied to the uh, UNSCR, which is the Commission for Refugees. And I get accepted to come to America in 2013. That's the, that's the short story. Uh, and it's been six years since I, since I lived in America. And you very, very recently passed your U.S. citizen test. Exactly. And it's your ceremony is in, is it one week from it's now? It's this next Friday. Yeah, okay. so on 28th uh, in, in Manhattan. So, I, I never expected when I was a child that, uh, that I ended up living in Manhattan and, and having a celebration there. So it's, it's really been an interesting journey. Well, I'm, I'm very excited for you. And this will go live the day before you become a U.S. citizen. So you, you came to the United States in 2013 and you, uh, you, you just recently turned 28. Ideas Beyond Borders was formed in 2017. Yes. So in, in the period between your, your arrival here and the creation of this organization, what was going through your mind in terms of coming to this point of realization of trying to create something that, that is working to, to tackle uh, radicalization? The subject of extremism and terrorism has been a central piece of my life since I was born. Um, and I was having lots of conversations, mainly with my brothers, and and many of them, um, and rightly so and wrongly so, they, they were like, we moved out of that country, they just started new lives over here. Uh, my brother is a doctor, the other brother is an engineer, um, and let's just start new life. And for me, I, I've always seen myself, I learned English since I was young, so I was able to speak English since I was eight. And I saw people around me uh, not having the access to that knowledge. And it's always been, uh, I mean, some people call it survivor's guilt, but I, but I, I call it the moral responsibility. Is that as a person who was privileged enough to, uh, to go to a very good university and also and, and be early worldly. I mean, I've, I've, I've traveled around many countries and not knowledge about many countries. I felt this responsibility to do something. Um, so when I first started, came to America, I mean, even before I came to America, I had about a, about a blog and then a Facebook page, which had roughly a quarter of a million followers. So when I came to America and I revealed my identity to what used to be under a hidden identity, and, and people were shocked. They thought it was like run by an American admin, but then I was actually started from Iraq all the way in. And then I was like, hi, my name is Faisal. I was the one who was running this page. Uh, I used to write commentary and research to share articles. So after that, I uh, really started getting into the speaking tours. So after I revealed the identity behind this page, it used to be a very followed uh, page. And until today, it's now 300,000. But at the time, I started to reveal my identity, and then I get into the speaking tour. And I get to know what other people are doing, etc. So I moved to D.C. 
Um, I, I was resettled in Texas and I moved to DC and I was actually another American story. I was hosted by, uh, by an American family for, who actually were following my blog. Really? And, uh, yeah. Uh, and they were like, we, like, you're an amazing kid. Uh, and we'd love to, we have a, we're living in two bedroom house. Uh, our daughter stays in New Mexico. We have empty house. Like if you, you seem like the type of guy who should live in DC. What are you doing in Texas? So they offered me their home. Uh, so I moved uh, to DC. Uh, started getting to know what the think tanks are doing, what other people are doing. So that's kind of like the first year of my American life. I got signed up uh, with multiple think tanks in DC to do research about Iraq and, and, and militias over there and all of that. And then I, I get offered a job with a project started by Google uh, of how to use technology to solve social issues. And that project was called Movements. So, so sometimes called the match.com for human rights. So people say, you're a journalist. And you say, I want to cover women's rights in Afghanistan. And then an Afghani woman wants to say, I want media coverage. What we do is that we match the people with a, with a skill with the people who need the skill. I mean, I'm in a way a co-founder of that project because all my advice about how to reach the youth and how to make it easy and all of that. That, that was three years. Um, and over also that three years in the speaking circuits, talking all over. And then I, um, I was like, I think it's now the moment for me to start my own organization. Uh, to actually, I mean, I was working for, for other organizations. I have the experience. And over that period, I got to know a lot of people who could be helping me um, in building the organization and and also funding for it. So I, I was able to secure seed funding to start the organization. And yeah, so I started Ideas Beyond Borders. Uh, and, and it was also, also a result of social media. I mean, I made a post uh, about like needing a lawyer and then uh, a lawyer from Clear the Godly, which is one of the second, second largest law firms in New York, was like, okay, I'm going to set up the organization for Wano. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, An example of social media for good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, uh, then people like Stephen Pinker came on board, and then um, also many people in the Arab world and, and, and professors and all of that. So I lived one year in DC, and then I moved to New York, and it's been it's been five years. I've spent most of my life in, in New York, actually, in, in, in America, New York. Yeah. The, the mission of Ideas Beyond Borders, in, in your organization's words, was that we aim to empower the vulnerable with hope and prevent extremism before it takes root. Yes. And you've gone about uh, doing that largely by spreading knowledge and Western ideas in an effort to combat extremism. Um, and so the, the, the kind of signature work that you have done so far is the House of Wisdom 2.0, where you've translated more than two million words into Arabic. And uh, we we met at an event, you and I met initially at an event in Boston, where you shared that, um, this has really stuck with me, that there are more books that have been translated into Spanish just in a year than in the history of the world that have been translated into Arabic. Um, so I would love if you could just talk a little bit about uh, the overall mission and then specifically how that translates translates uh, to, to uh, House of Wisdom 2.0. Literally, it translates. So as, as through my journey, and, and as I said, many people that I grew up with, uh, I mean, I know young people who joined Al-Qaeda in my neighborhood. For me, these terrorist groups are not foreign, they're not just the groups I've seen on the internet. And if there is one thing that uh, 
has been ignored as, as I lived in Iraq and the U.S. war in Iraq and all of that is how, I mean, I mean extremism and, and terrorism it, it grows in the ecosystem and, and that ecosystem includes socioeconomics, but most importantly, it includes ideas. When you grew up as a teenager in, in, in Cairo and, and, and Baghdad, whatever, and the only knowledge that you have access to is is really not a type of knowledge that opens up your mind, that gets you to know about different cultures, that um, you become easily vulnerable to be recruited. Uh, if the only world you see is a black and white world. And so the the mission is, and, and the statistic you mentioned from the UN Development Report that says there are more books translated to Spanish in one year than Arabic in 1,000 years. And there are multiple reasons for it, from authoritarian regimes to extremists who don't want that and it's it's sad that it's never been done before. So, for example, when when we started in our time looking at the landscape of what is the Arab youth are, are exposed to, and they hardly uh, exposed to most of what people take for granted is the ideas of uh, pluralism and 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 freedom of speech and freedom of religion, all of that. Hardly any of the Arab youth have been at least introduced to them in a in a constructive manner and in a way that really empowers them. So uh, the the name the naming of the House of Wisdom is is coming to by now is coming from that in my hometown of Baghdad there was a project in the 13th century, and and that was kind of the age of the Enlightenment in the Arab and the Muslim world, in which they used to translate works of different cultures from Greece and Rome and all these places. Now we're kind of recreating that we are rekindling that era in which the Arab world used to be far more accepting and far more open to different no- ideas and knowledge. That it is right now. I mean, over the past 600 years or so, the Arab world has been in constant decline, at least mentally, in terms of, of education, in terms of diversity of viewpoints. So that that is kind of the, so changing the uh, the ecosystem that many of these youth grow grows up in. Well, we 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 obviously translate and expose people. We're also about empowerment. I mean, uh, we are opening up a branch at the at the University of Mosul. This is where ISIS used to have a stronghold. And if there was one word that I kept hearing from everybody I was talking to there, is the word hopeless. The House of Wisdom to my own and the organization as a whole is really about empowering these people. I mean, we're not just like giving them some money to translate, but also make them part of a movement, create this identity that we can actually do it, that there's nothing stops uh, an Arab or an Iranian to be open-minded, to be uh, exposed to different ideas, to learn from different cultures. And... We've had really tremendous success. I mean, I was kind of shocked at the beginning when I, I thought that there are like kind of fringe people who care about these ideas. But almost every day we have, I mean, as of now, we have 4 million views to our content in just the past six months. So, so previously we also had uh, more. And it's just that the curiosity among many of, of the people, I think some of it is that many of the young people know what is wrong, but they don't know what is right. And I think we are trying to provide that alternative viewpoint that the average, uh, and also we create videos and we create short summaries and all that to make it as accessible as possible to the person who's driving an Uber and, and all of that. So that way we don't want to be like a college or kind of only for highly educated people, but rather uh, the, the average people who, who really have been prohibited from having most of that knowledge from countries banning books to censorship on the internet, to, to censorship in, in, uh, out of fear, out of extremists and terrorists, where we, we are relaunching our digital library that actually can 
in which all, all of our content will be will be put at. And uh, I'm, I'm very excited for it. I think that when there is a void of an alternative, then you know what what choice do you have? Uh, I'm actually reminded of a of of the movie American President. Uh, there's a, a line from Michael J. Fox. He plays, I, I think, the fictitious president's chief of staff. And he's talking about the importance of quality leadership. He says the people want leadership and that in the absence of genuine leadership, that people will listen to anybody who has a microphone. Um, and, and the line that kind of sticks with me uh, is they're so thirsty for it, they'll crawl through the desert towards a mirage. And when they discover there's no water, they'll drink the sand. Wow. Again, from a yeah. <laughs> from a, a sort of cheesy American movie, but yeah, yeah. it's this is a concept that applies, I think, globally. Of course, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I've, I connected to people who used to live in the former Soviet Union, and, and they talk about how the fact that they were also had lack of access to diversity viewpoints, and I mean, the, the United States and another free world have used to understand that, that in, in terms of the Soviet Union, I think that. These are war of ideas. At the end of the day, I mean, every president wants to celebrate that they have killed a top terrorist. They have killed Bilal, and we have killed Zarqawi, and we have killed... But these are very short-term goals, and sometimes you kill one and you create another hundred. Uh, and all of these ideas uh, go beyond borders. I mean, that's kind of where the name comes from, is that there are, I've, I've talked to people who have been re- recruited, or at least attempt to recruit, from a guy living in France recruiting a guy in Canada and a guy living mm-hmm. in Canada recruiting a guy in Yemen. And because it is, it is about the ideas. And I think there has been a really a lack of counter, a really good counter narrative that is empowering. I mean, everybody wants to defeat terrorism, but they don't really think much of the people who are also affected by terrorism who live around it all the time. I, I mean, there has been, for example, success stories in, in Iraq, for example, when, when the awakening forces happened with General David Petraeus and all of that, mm-hmm. in which there was kind of, uh, I think one of Petraeus' famous quotes is that we cannot, I mean, in a way, like we cannot, uh, number one, you cannot draw your way out of an idea. You cannot draw your way out of, of this war. If, if we, we really want to change the defeat terrorism, we also, we have to care about the lives of the locals as much as we care about our lives. And that's why people there has been more receptive to programs that cares about them than kind of this trickle-down approach of, Oh, we think you should follow this, and and uh, and I think that that also explains some of the success in the organization because it is led by people from there. I mean, all of the people from there, they they get there's obviously monetary funds, but they're also they get certificates that can get them exposed that they can help uh, their resume to apply for different jobs. Uh, so our translators actually get a lot of benefit from mm-hmm. joining us, and also the people who read that content get the benefit of not just reading, but also become a part of a movement that can empower them in other things. So, so we have really, over the past year since we started, is really focusing on the movement element, is that if we create a new identity that is empowered, that believes in the ideas of diversity and enlightenment in general, then that is the best counter to extremism. Because extremism does just the same, but in a different negative way. They also create a movement, they also try to uh, empower, obviously in a very bad way, but they... they so in a way, we, we, we follow the extremists, but it's just in the reverse side. We, we, are, um, we follow the good ideas, and I believe they follow the bad ideas. What kind of tactics have you deployed to get such reach for you know, 4 million views? Since I mean, my, my journey from Iraq, that was the time it was the internet, was getting momentum across the Arab world and, and all of that. 
And since then, I've been really constantly building my network, connecting new people, um, going to events with, with young youth leaders and all of that. Over the past, what well, now it's been 14 years, I've been kind of expanding my network from people in Morocco to people in Egypt to people in Baghdad, all over. And when I started my organization, they were the first people that I thought of. I've talked to the top journalists in the region. I've talked to top uh, influencers who have millions of followers across the region. I mean, the 4 million are all the people who watch our, our content, but also we have the, our partners and affiliates have about 40 million likes or followers. And these are people who are from top video bloggers to top, uh, to top writers to admins of pages to some of them are comedians. I mean, I do, one of our influencers is a, is a comedian in Baghdad who have, uh, has about 1.2 million followers. He, he creates a criticism of Islamic, uh, like Islamist groups like ISIS and others. And, and what I told him is that, well, you're also creating this content. Your, your audience would seem to be receptive to the fact that we need to criticism these, criticize these groups. Well, this is other content that can help empower them. As a result, many of these admins have been very receptive and many of these uh, leaders have been very receptive. And every time we create content, I share it with all of them and they can pick and choose whether they want to share an article about Martin Luther King or they want to share an article about Rosa Parks or, or whatever. They, every month or so, we have a monthly discussion to see how successful it has been and, and what ways to improve. So it's done in a very systematic way and, and it's really reaching out to people who already have a lot of following, who already have been trusted by the local groups and all of that. And in two years, yeah, like having a million, a million followers in two years is not easy, especially as Facebook made it more and more difficult to reach people. Um, it's, what it shows is that there is momentum and there is also a lot of curiosity among young people to actually get that information. Thinking a little bit domestically, we've we've spoken in the past, and, and you have said that domestically and abroad that you see polarization as the mother of extremism, and as a result, you are in part getting a little more proactive when it comes to polarization issues in the United States, in line with with some of Sanity's mission. Uh, I, I, Stephen Pinker is on your board and and is the author of Enlightenment Now that uh, that Bill Gates considers to be the the best book I think written in history or something like that. And and what I love about Pinker's uh, attitude and approach is he's very fact focused and he he focuses on the positives of the advances of society and and around the world but at the same time we are in a more heightened polarized political state in the United States so what is your perspective on that and what kind of work do you think can be done to uh, to quell this before it becomes worse I mean, my, my view about America evolves as I, as I live here. I was, in, when I first landed, I mean, I was kind of in a, in a state of shock about how, I mean, on the subject of foreign, I started, started first with foreign policy about how people really viewed the Iraq war. And you can see a huge difference. And there's hardly any convergence of how, at least people within my circle who are on the right and the left see, see some of these issues. So my, my point about polarization being the mother of extremism is that it, it's, it generally starts there when you start to look at people as different. And then after looking at people as different, then you think that ideas are evil. And then they think that's the other side. I mean, the fact that I've, I've seen many, many even journalists say, 
well, we're talking to the other side. I mean, mm -hmm. the fact that we use language like this, which is the other side, shows that, um, and I think that it's, it's been exacerbated by, I think, I mean, social media has, has really played a role in that because it, it's built on this concept that you, you like, you only hear what you like. And as a result, many of, uh, unfortunately, some influencers start using that as a way to generate more likability to them. And it, it works. I mean, generally polarization and and getting people not to understand. I think it's much it's growing up in the Middle East. I think I think hate is the easiest thing to do because it's, it's kind of very simple to understand. It's, and that, I think that I mean we totally agree that polarization is is, is a problem. I think that the solution, and I'm, and I'm always um, I also advise some European governments on this regarding that subject and also the fact of immigration coming to Europe and all that. I think we have to enhance the concept of citizenship is that when people look at each other as citizens of the same country, which means they share the same fate, I think it, it empowers them. If they put that as first, then they put the ideology as second. As more as we enhance the concept of citizenship. So there's, there's been, I mean, teaching people about civics is definitely one way of it, but one of the things uh, in, uh, in, in Denmark, I think, is applied in which what they do is that they take some of the big CEOs, the rich CEOs, and then they, they get them to live with students for a few days. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons about that is that we are in this together. I mean, I could be the rich guy and you could be the poor person. We're both citizens of this country and we both care about this country and we're both equal. With the, the respect, I respect you, even though I'm different from your age or different from your view. Um, because there are always going to be differences. We, there's, we're never going to have, it's going to be a very boring world in which everybody believes the same. Or as, I mean, I think one of the best things about democracy and, and discourse is that it is a self-correcting mechanism. So the more we know, the more we can have conversations, the, the better ways of living in a way emerge. So I think that the more we can, I mean, I, what I've seen is that in America, I mean, this is, this is at least my, my own personal experience is that it differs from place to place, but the most people who claim, like, who are patriotic, at least in, in my experience, have been the people who left the country the least. Mm. And the people who, who are very critical of America have been the one who are well-traveled, even though they have traveled to places that are much worse than America. But I think there is this concept that as more and more you get exposed and then now you are a global citizen and then you forget what really made this country great. And that's, that's at least I've seen it in like big cities in which kind of it's normal to criticize how America is done, how America is run and all of that. And I think that it's important for, I mean, at least for my job and I think other, other immigrants to also tell these Americans to keep things in perspective. I mean, right. while, while in, a, in, a, in a country like America, there are mistakes and all of that, but I think it is still one of the best countries in the world. There's still uh, all of the recipe for success for this country. I mean, there's a, there's a great law and there's, there's great, at least the economy is doing great. So just putting that in perspective and putting that, yes, well, there is this disagreement and whether how much we should have universal healthcare and, and, and all of that. Uh, and really moving that into a subject other than just a disagreement of point of view into the other, the other side. It's, it's constantly being enforced by people is that if we have a disagreement of point of view, you hate the, the people who belong to that. I mean, I get that quite a lot in, in which uh, when I discuss things like related, related fighting extremism, and then I get a response that 
oh, well, this your talk can help the marginalization of Muslims. Well, that's not my intention. It mm-hmm. can come as a result of that. And I'm obviously trying my best to avoid that my talk or my work would yeah. in any way contribute to that. But it's, it's highly used that I think that assumes the worst intentions of somebody when, when you're a charming blogger or, 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 or a journalist who can recruit people into hating the other side, then you're making the problem worse. Uh, I mean, there, there's extremism and, and charming individuals are actually very connected because when you have people who are have a very hateful point of view, but they know how to express it well and they're, and they're good public speakers and they're good, then it, it, they would make the problem worse. And I think education in terms of um, we actually do that in my organization well, kind of in a smaller scale, about how people can differentiate between propaganda articles and, and fake news and hateful articles. The Center for Relations, they have Council Relations, so they have the World 101 program, which is about just get the facts right and how to kind of differentiate between the articles that try to like ignite your emotions and mm-hmm. make you angry again, and the articles that are just like, this is how the world is today. Uh, and I think Spinker is doing a great job of kind of showing that despite all of these conflicts, there's actually a lot of good things happening too. Stories like yours to help ground perspective on the beauty of this country and the freedoms that we hold and the beauty of a democracy um, are, are really critically important. We're a little short on time, but I, I want to ask you uh, three three questions before we close. The first is, uh, you spoke very recently on a panel at the University of Rochester, and the panel was about ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and what's going on, generally speaking, in the Middle East. There were protests to this panel, and they were pretty extreme, and a fellow participant of the panel wrote this. He said that that you, an Iraqi-born secular rights advocate and the only Arab on the panel, bore the brunt of the attacks. He was denounced as a puppet and a traitor for discussing the role of religion in motivating groups like ISIS in his native country. So <laughs> how, uh, how did you... That. that was a very interesting... I mean, I, I think it's probably been one of the uh, craziest experiences I've had uh, in a while. Um, and I've been through a lot. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's, I mean, just, just to unpack this. So, so the main reason of the protest was, at least according to, to them, was the fact that because there were attacks by white supremacists in uh, a month before the event or something, we should not have a talk about the Middle East, but we should have a talk about white supremacy and other attacks. So that's kind of the, supposedly the, the main motivation of why they were protesting. And then when I mentioned to the main protester that um, we have been trying to plan this event six months ago, and, and the reason why it's today is because the, uh, the Graham Wood from the Atlantic had a very tough schedule, he just published a book, and it was very hard to get him on a, on a date. And so and I, and I, and I started an organization, I was busy. So the fact that the, the date picking has nothing to do with the fact that we have no sympathy uh, for, uh, at the time, I think what happened in New Zealand, the, the massacre right. in New Zealand. Right. And we started actually our talk with a moment of silence for those for those who, who died. And and I was telling her that, I understand, that, but here's the reason why the timing. And obviously, as I said back, it's like, they assume the worst of the intentions. So the, the timing of the event has nothing to do with the fact that we don't like uh, sympathy. 
And then I, I told her that, well, but I'm not an expert on white supremacy. I mean, there, there are people, if, if there is an event and white supremacy happens and they bring people with experiences, sure, I mean, that would be lovely. I mean, there is, is, I, mean I don't comment on what's happening in Mongolia. So it's not my subject of knowledge or expertise. And then I told her, like, okay, so in your opinion, uh, that's what I told her, in your opinion, what would be the best time to have an event like this? She said, only when America and Israel are defeated. <gasps> So that was her response. I was like, I mean, I understand you have an issue with the timing. And, and at the beginning, you explained that one week ago, after, I think three weeks ago, the attack in New Zealand happened. And, and I apologize for the, the timing part. But I thought, like, what would be a good time to talk about um, the, the ecosystem that ISIS grew up in or the ideology that ISIS grew up in? And she said, so that was her response. She said, only when Israel, America and Israel defeated. There is room for common ground and there are bridges to be built, but it, I mean, you have to have willingness to have the bridges built and, and sometimes you, you, you can't find them. So what did you say to her? I, mean, I, I was just stopped talking. I, mean, I was like, <laughs> well, there is no reply there. I mean, I mean, yeah. I, I, uh, I mean, there's, an, sorry, technically, there's no time to have the conversation and, and, and I don't even believe that we should defeat America to have a conversation about extremism. And that's just, it's just a ridiculous viewpoint. Um, so yeah, that was a, and, and, and to be honest, I mean, I was the, the, the other imam was the one who was insulted the most. The fact that he was, so he's from a minority sect uh, called Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, a minority that is persecuted all over, mainly in Pakistan. And so he comes from this very minority point of view and he joined that, that panel as Kind of, a, they said we it would be great to have a Muslim on the panel, so in that way he can give the view from a religious viewpoint and and, and debating yeah. that. And uh, it was not enough. In fact, he was the one most insulted, and very in very rude terms. So it's kind of very shocking. It's like the the sixteen, seventeen year old, eighteen year olds go to an imam and and insult him in his face. So he got more because he. He was the kind of a Muslim representative, and they're like, mm. "Why are you like? You should not be in the panel like this. You should you never have a conversation about this. There's no conversation that we had, and even the the, the Q and A was not a Q and A. It was really just statements. I mean, all of them were. Um, so it was a very interesting experience, to say mm. the least. One person, I mean, if there's a positive thing, one person came to me. It's like. You, you are the complete opposite of what these guys described to you when they asked to sign. Because there was a petition before the event to cancel the event. So the same, uh, the same person who said that you should not have a conversation about extremism was also the same person who started a petition to get as many students as possible to cancel the event. And um, so she was like kind of recruiting people to sign it. And one person came into me and is like, you're like the complete opposite of, of, your, uh, of what you were, they, they were describing. Um, and I was like, well, I'm, I'm glad that... that uh... At least one person, <laughs> yes. Well, I, we, we, I, I would love to, on a more positive note, ask you um, what your favorite American tradition or holiday is and or quick anecdote of something that you really, truly have loved about, about living here on the horizon of becoming a, a U.S. citizen. I would say July 4th. And also because it's linked to the, the family that hosted me in Virginia and in, in D.C., they actually flew me from Texas to come to D.C. to, to celebrate the 4th of July. I actually made a Facebook post and I said, like, what is the best place to celebrate the 4th of July? And they came in. And, and for me, actually, still, I, I hold the 4th of July as a very 
big data is so great. And uh, I've, I've been privileged to actually go to once to the Senate with some people to celebrate. Uh, that's the best spot. <laughs> yes, I've, I've been lucky to have that experience, too. That's uh, the best view. It is, it is a great spot. And also in New York. Uh, so I, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's I mean, I, I do love the story of America. I think, I think it's, it's, a, it's a story of, of resilience, of, of enlightenment ideals, become, like, having the practice of them being implemented. I think that it's, it's a really great project, and, I, and I'm happy to be part of it. Our last question that we ask every guest is, what are you most optimistic about right now, today? Oh, that's tough. <laughs> uh, but um, I think I think having these projects like uh, what we're doing and seeing that people, there's a lot of people who really like it, gives me optimistic every day. There is people who want to have a better life, and I think that... Um, as Martin Luther King, the moral arc of the universe, pens towards justice. I think it will. We will. I think the good ideas will eventually win. Well, thank you so much for joining Sanity, and I wish Ideas Beyond Borders all all the luck. Thank you. Thank you.